travel writing is so important because it shapes what we know of the world. And if it's all the same people saying it, then we're learning very little about the world. So you really have a responsibility to broaden that definition and those voices. This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. Hi, friends. Do you ever look at someone online who's doing a ton of traveling or dedicating a lot of time to their creativity and you think, oh, that must be really nice. (laughs) And you go, how do they do that? Well, today you're going to learn all the secrets about travel and writing residencies and how to get accepted into programs that will allow you to travel and work on your craft. And before we dive into today's conversation, I have one such opportunity available. So I am teaching a retreat at Omega Institute in upstate New York, August 20th through 25th. And I am delighted about this retreat because it's called Come Home to Your Heart. It's a restorative retreat for women, and it's based on the principles in my new book, which is a guided journal. And so it really is for writers and non-writers alike to dive introspectively, tap into your innate wisdom, and fall back in love with yourself. And I love Omega because I attended a retreat there as a participant a couple of years ago, and the grounds are stunning, trees everywhere, a lake to canoe or kayak in, amazing food in the cafeteria, a beautiful meditation center, and not to mention just all the beautiful souls that you meet while you're there. I could not be more thrilled than to be leading this retreat. So I hope you'll join me. I'll put the link in the show notes and or you could go to Omega Institute's website. All right, my friends. So who is on the show today talking about travel and writing and writing residencies? Well, I couldn't think of anyone better but Faith Edielli. She is the author of Meeting Faith. She was Thailand's first Black Buddhist nun. And she has attended more writing residencies than anyone I have ever met. Every time I turn around, she is traveling to a new place. And many times it is covered. It is funded. And I just really selfishly just needed to know, how does she do it? And I wanted you to benefit from hearing our conversation so that you can know how to find those opportunities for yourself so that you can travel and work on your craft and hopefully have part or all of it be covered. So you'll want to listen to this episode with a pen and paper. As a podcast host, I never take notes because you can hear it on the microphone and I could not stop myself. I was frantically writing it. (laughs) I was writing notes on what websites to visit, how to create application materials that these places want so that you have a better chance of getting picked. Oh my gosh, this is just chock full of information. You are going to love it. Let's dive in. So my friends, So many of you have had the burning question of how to get a writing residency, how to make more time for your writing, how to travel and write at the same time. And today, all of those burning questions are going to be answered. So today we have Faith Ediele on the show, and what I am so excited about is, first of all, the the travel lover in me can't wait to ask her about all the places she's been 
and how she's been able to compile a life of travel and writing and make it work and sustain that. And so Faith is going to talk to us today about many, many things, being a travel memoirist, uh, about her book, Meeting Faith, about getting writing residencies, and about being Thailand's first Black Buddhist nun. I mean, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. So welcome to the show, Faith. (laughs) Thank you so much, Faith. It's great to be here. Uh, and I'm just cracking up because yes, I have so many interests. And then when I went on your website, I was like, oh, we share so many of them. I mean, and I think first of all, it's just this strong belief in empowering women to tell their stories and the importance, the psychic, the political, the personal importance of helping people tell their stories and then doing it in this kind of holistic wellness way. And so I love that because I used to think that everything I did was so odd, like how do I reconcile this travel part of me with my Buddhist nun part, with my teaching part, with my this, my that. And then finally, I was just like, let me just be me. And hopefully the rest of the world will catch up. And I think we're at this moment where you and I can like see each other and be like, I recognize what you're doing and it makes sense. And let's have a conversation about it. So thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to speaking to your loyal followers, many of whom are friends of mine. I know that. Yes, I know. I always know that I'm in the presence of an amazing person when someone from my community recommends a person because if they're good Mm. souls, then I know who they're recommending is a good soul. And so you've been recommended by both Barbara Phillips and Tyrion in my group, and they're incredible. So Mm. in the vein of covering these many different wonderful areas of expertise that you have, maybe you can fill us in a bit about how you came to love and do all of these many different things. Mm, Certainly. I mean, I think part happens even before I was born. I, you know, I come from an international family. My mother's the daughter of uh, Nordic immigrants, Finnish and Swedish. My father was a Nigerian graduate student. They were really interested in the world. They were interested in telling stories. They told personal stories intertwined with political stories. And I was just raised to feel that I had work to do in the world. And it was either going to be political activity or it was going to be storytelling, truth telling, just this sort of thing. And so, you know, I grew up the only Black girl in my town, school, and family. And was itching to get out. And so the from the age 15, I started studying overseas, traveling as much as I could, and realizing that that's really where I learned the most was through encountering different cultures and finding out what was similar, what was different, what I was good at, what I wasn't good at, telling stories. But I was really frustrated with what I saw, how I saw travel writing. I found it very kind of segregated, very kind of traditional. And so I just started saying that I was a travel writer just to kind of shake things up and hopefully create more spaces where people would invite me to do travel. And so I think that's kind of how I've been able to end up in so many places or, you know, choose residencies, choose conferences that are in a place that allow me to then attach travel to it. And I started through being this poor student because I thought, oh, as a student, it's very easy to travel. And so figuring out how to like find free money was like always been key. And then I feel a responsibility to share that with others. So I, you know, I started teaching workshops on how to find out about residencies and how to travel abroad, because I felt that if you're first generation college, or if you don't know what it is to be a a working artist, no one tells you about any of those things. So that's also part of my project is to demystify and explain to people. But I was just basically, you know, trying to educate myself and study and then write and work on my craft and just kind of follow whatever interested me. I ended up being a nun purely by accident. It was an accident of failure, flunking out of college and doing this research project. And oops, I shaved my head and I'm living in the temple. What's that about? But (laughs) we're going to have to talk more about that a little bit later. Yeah, don't try this at home, kids. But I kept a journal, which, as you know, is important. And then that I could leverage that and for writing later. And so it's just really kind of following what interests me and then figuring out kind of how to write about it. I can't remember what question I was supposed to be answering. 
<laughs> it's all all the things are good here. You hit on so many different areas that are are important. I too am a first generation college student in my family, and so when you talk about you know how to navigate and find the free money and mm. how to know what's available and and how to feel that travel and residencies are accessible mm -hmm. and it's like a whole new world to navigate and if you don't know the rules and the tools it feels yeah. like it's gated yeah. and so i so appreciate your mission to make that information available to people mm -hmm. because i remember when i was an undergrad and i i saw these other students going and studying abroad i thought that they had signed up for some special thing that wasn't even available to me i didn't know it right. could be right exactly so yeah. to sustain this now um, through adulthood and have a lifestyle where travel and time for writing is part of your your regular every day that sounds like a dream for many people and it also though feels very inaccessible and in particular for minority populations even more inaccessible so i want to touch on this but first i think it would be helpful for listeners to even know where you're at right now currently in the world and what you're doing just so they can get a sense that you are living what you speak right so this is crazy i'm i'm in fez morocco which is northern morocco i'm living in the medina i think it's one of the oldest medinas in the world it's a medieval city. It's one of the largest carless medieval cities in the world. There are 9,500 little paths and people are living here the way they have lived from time immemorial. And I have a residency, a house in this Medina. It's insane. I get to live for eight weeks inside this Medina and have Arabic lessons and have people in the community that we connect with. It's run through an organization called the American Language Center, which is a Moroccan organization. It's not American at all, but they teach English, they teach Arabic, and someone lent them this house that was renovated in 1800, I think, two-story tile house, and there's an artist upstairs, and then me downstairs, we share this place together. It's incredible. And then they're also sending me around the country to talk about my project. So I'm writing a craft book on travel writing. And so they're also inviting me to go and speak at other American language centers and run workshops. So I just came back last week. I went out and taught like five different classes in Casablanca, Marrakesh, El Jadida, et cetera. Okay. So listeners right now are going, what? <laughs> oh, and I have a cook too. Let me right. just say, I have a woman who comes in and makes Moroccan food for us. <laughs> You know, so of course, what people are going to know, want to know is like, how do we get there? How do we bridge mm -hmm. the gap? But also maybe you can just kind of give a quick fun rundown of the different places that you have gotten to travel and write to just so people can get a feel of the breadth of your travel profile. <laughs> Sure. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in, in Mexico. That's where I first started. My first book is set in Thailand, and I spent two years in Thailand, one in a temple. I've done a fair amount in South Africa. I took students on a study abroad program in South Africa. So I then also wrote my first sleep story for the call map was set in Lesotho, and it was based on a trip that I took the students on uh, trekking in the mountains. So I've done Lesotho, Botswana, South Africa. I've done the Horn of Africa, so Tanzania and Zanzibar. I went to school for a year in Nigeria, which is where my father's from. And I met my siblings and my father when I was 26 and did a year of graduate school there. And PBS did a film about that. And I've written some things all about West Africa because then I did Senegal, Togo, Benin, Mali, and Nigeria itself. Right now I'm doing a little of Northern Africa. And then my mother's people are, are from Finland and Sweden. So I took my mom to find her family. So I've also been teaching in Finland, particularly with uh, folks of color, because that's a whole new area. So working on what is an Afro-Nordic identity. So I, I go there and I work in the Nordic region as well. And then I've done conferences here and there. Brazil is a place I like to be. I've done residencies, a lot of residencies in France, one in Umbria on the Tuscany border in a castle, Canada, the Banff Mountains, 
things like that. <laughs> yes. Places I couldn't afford to go on my own. So thanks to the residencies. <laughs> right. It's just like, why not? I always tell women in my community, if, if first of all, you deserve to have time made for your writing. And yeah, yeah. if there is opportunity and funding out there, why not you? Why not you exactly. to be the right. one to have it? So out of those many places, could you give us top three that you loved or top five even? Countries or residencies? Residencies. Okay. Um, I've got to say Sakatar Foundation on an island in Brazil. Chef's Kiss, like amazing. Just beautifully, beautifully done. Uh, very, very thoughtful and a real smooth integration between the local community and the residency itself being a force for positive change and then really supporting particularly folks of color, Africana people who feel strong connection to Brazil. So love that one. Gosh, this one's pretty, pretty amazing. And it's only in its second year. And they're, you know, they're really killing it. It's really, really, really wonderful. What else have I loved? I always, I always go blank when I'm asked to talk about things. I know. Um, <laughs> then I'm like, what, what, where have I been? <laughs> um, I did really love the one in Italy. Uh, it's invitation only. So, mm -hmm. but it was, it's really beautifully done. And that, that area is really gorgeous. Uh, Hedgebrook is one that just focuses on women, and it's on an island in uh, Washington State, Whidbey Island, and they have a really fantastic mission. When I first started, it was just the idea that women don't have access and women deserve this, and they didn't even read samples. They just kind of pulled it out of a hat, and they were just like, if you're serious and you want to do this, we want to make it possible for you. Their messaging has been so successful that it's probably more competitive to get in there than some of the really, really well-known prestigious ones because the mission has been so clear and people who wouldn't apply anywhere else apply there. So it's ironic, but they still do have an incredible mission and they have an organic garden and they cook food for you. And you have your own beautiful little cottage with a little meditation area, a little nook and a bay window. And it's set in this like cute little forest. And so the thought and care in that one is just really incredible. And I'm sure others will come to me as, as we yeah. talk. Yes. So uh, please school us. Let's start with the beginning. First of all, how and where can people find these opportunities? Where can they go to search what's even available? Yeah, there are, I'd say, three clearinghouses that I really like. And one is the Alliance of Artist Communities. And that's really the best, I would say, for domestic. Uh, if you want to uh, look in the U.S. and almost any reputable residency is going to be registered with them. And I think that's really good because the first one I went to <laughs> was off the radar. <laughs> yeah. And I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. And so they, since then, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Just because someone says they're willing to let you come to their place, <laughs> you, you really want to be careful about that and make sure they belong to some sort of governing body that, you know, that holds them accountable. They've got yes. insurance, they have a, a vetted application procedure, they have best practices. And so that's why I love going through these because when you can find them, you can search really easily, but then you also know that, you know, somebody has been paying attention to them. So the great thing about Alliance for Artist Communities is that then you can do an easy search, like, are they accepting first-time writers who've never been accepted to anything, emerging writers. You can uh, search by genre of literature or any other art form. You can search by region. So you can really find out what works for you. And I think you can even sign, for most of these, you can sign up for a newsletter that tells you that deadlines are coming up. So it's really, really helpful because then it's always reminding you that, oh, I need to be applying to things. Um, the ones I use for international residencies is an organization called Res Artis, R-E-S-A-R-T-I-S, and then Trans Artists, Trans Artis, um, and they both like cover globally, and it's all the arts, which I like. I love to go to residencies where it's not just writers, so like right now, I'm a uh, in Morocco, the person who shares the space with me is a DJ, mm -hmm. but she's really inter really interested in climate justice and she does slow travel and she refuses to fly. So she came here from Germany by boat and train. And so we talk about travel all the time and it's so great. I love having these kind of cross genre conversations. And so I love going to the residencies that aren't just writers. So their clearinghouse is really huge because they focus on the arts and anywhere in the world. And again, you can just do a search for like, what countries you're interested in, what genres, 
what levels they expect from you. And so those are three great clearinghouses. Mm, and that's so helpful. And I'll put all of the links in the show notes. So someone starts there. And mm-hmm. I usually recommend, as you did, to people to really think about the experience that they want to have. And so make this something that is not only an opportunity to focus on your writing, but in a place that you really have interest in going because it's going to enrich the experience. Also, like you said, know yourself and who you want to be surrounded with. Do you want to Mm -hmm. be surrounded by all other writers? Is that your focus? Or are you interested in having a multimedia kind of conversation? What, What are you looking for? Length of time is really important too. Knowing what will and will not work for your life situation at any given point. (laughs) Yeah. And your personality too. Like, because oftentimes there's a lot of quiet time. You know, you're going to be on your own for a lot, a lot of these residencies. And some people aren't used to that. It's really hard. And I think, particularly communities of color, it's kind of antithetical to the way we are. And so, to do you want to be out in the forest all by yourself? first time, maybe not. (laughs) And so like Mesa Refuge, where I met Tyrion and Barbara was like a, that's a great starter one because it's just two weeks. It's in this house, just three people. I mean, it was so wonderful to be there with two other black women. We just bonded. And it was the first time for each of them, I think. So it was really great for them to see what is possible Mm -hmm. and really start to feel confident about one, you can call yourself a writer and two, I can do residencies. I can figure out what I want from them. Yes. Okay. So once someone has these details figured out and really knowing themselves and what would work for their situation, when they begin to focus on the application process, I I find that this is where things go a little awry sometimes is that people love doing the research and they'll write the list (laughs) of all the places they want to apply. (laughs) And then it comes time for application and they're like, oh, they're asking for a lot of stuff. (laughs) So it's like, okay, one, just focus on one maybe, but maybe you can walk us through the application process and how you make it less overwhelming for yourself and then what you think the places are looking for, how you've been able to successfully go to so many. Right. I think once you do the building blocks, it's super easy. And so I have my students really work on like, what is your project statement? And like, once you're really clear about what your statement is, and you have that on your computer, you have a long version, you have a medium sized version, you have a small version, some of them need references or letters of recommendation. So you get those three references or letters of recommendation, you have them there. That's what stops us. 90% of applications is not wanting to ask for a letter of recommendation, right? (laughs) So you get that. You have your CV or your full CV, and then you have the like 150 words, the 200 words. So basically, you just kind of put together this little factory of all the things you need in this portfolio. And then anytime you see one, you can put something together super quickly. I think the key thing when I, because I just got done teaching a semester long class called What to Do with Your MFA, and my students were doing all sorts of things, but I did make one each apply to a residency. And one of the things, I noticed that they're so kind of caught up in like, this is what I'm interested in, but not really thinking about their project as a product that will connect with other people. And so to really think about if you're writing like a dystopian novel, that's a critique of capitalism, this is kind of a moment to talk about that. And so connect that to what's going on right now. Don't just say I'm interested in this, but like, I want to be part of this conversation that's crucial for why, why, you know, how we're living right now. So really think about that. And I've judged a lot of these residencies too. And what we're looking for is, is this the person to do the project? Is this the place to do it? And is this the moment? And so I'm saying, if you're, if you're just graduating right now, or if you've taken it as far as you can, or you have a little free time, or like, this is the moment to really do it. You know, there are these articles out there right now, or I've just gotten a little push or I'm pregnant. I may not be able to do it in the future. I mean, whatever is the moment now, like I've been working on it. This is why I'm the person to tell this story. This is why the story matters in the world. And this is why I need this residency now. And I've thought about this place too. And so if it's a residency that's out in the woods, you might talk about 
how you were ordained as Thailand's first black Buddhist nun and you're okay being in the woods. <laughs> you know, if it talks a lot about like having people from around the world, you might talk about your community experience, how you've lived collectively and how you, you know, like to cook for others and how you like to engage. You want to have these cross-cultural conversations. So you think about the place there and why you would fit there too, why you're asking for that particular place. Mm. Um, and so all of that helps it feel more compelling that it's, you know, tailored. You have the building blocks, but then you read what it is they're saying matters to them. And then you tailor it towards that to show you've paid attention. Mm. That's so huge. Yeah. Why you, why now, why this place really yeah. creating a sense of urgency and that you need to be the one chosen for this opportunity, because mm -hmm. if they are supporting you throughout this experience, they want to know that the person who comes is going to really use it to its fullest and then give right. back to the community or the place in some way. Exactly. This is so helpful because I think when people see artist statement or your project goals and we want a bio, we want a CV, there is a major sense of overwhelm. Mm -hmm. And this question of what are residency panels and committees even looking for? So when people are putting together their bios and their CVs and artist statements. Is there anything else that you feel like, okay, here are some guidelines that are really being looked for so that they know what to choose of all the information to share? Yeah, I think a lot of times emerging writers think that they have to have writing qualifications. And if they don't, then they shouldn't even bother. But I'm saying, look at your life experience. Like you're probably writing something that matters to you. And so if you say, you know, I had a student who's like, oh, I just started, you know, I'm like going to grad school at age 60 and I've got no right. I was like, that's the story. Like, yeah. you know, right. It was like you raise these daughters while being running your own business. And then COVID made you rethink, like, why am I doing this? What do I really want to do? <laughs> I'm going to you throw it all away or, you know, I'm going to walk away from this, from this high power job that I did to have security to raise my daughters. And think about the fact that I want to change the world that they're living in now and write a novel that kind of deals with women's rights. And so like writing this historical novel will help you kind of create the world. And it's so it's bold. I mean, that's a great story that like I, I looked around, I had all the success and I decided to walk away from it move to a different state to do grad school, to learn craft, because I loved writing out for some time, you know, and I was like, and then all the things you've done, you've created a business, you've raised successful girls, you've, you know, you've gotten into graduate school, you know, yeah. there's activism that you've done or, that are connected to the themes in the book, you're doing the research in the library, you know, all of this kind of stuff, that's part of the narrative. So you, who cares if you only have two publications? So really yeah. think about the holistic, passionate self and all the things you've done that support that. Yes. I'm part of a mixed family. I, this, I, that, just all of this stuff will then create, could be the statement that supports yeah. that. All of these things, think of the things that you do. My friend Paulette, perhaps is so good about that. She's like, think of all the things you do and consider them as job titles. You know, it's like, yeah. just like all the work we do, right? You have to like market yourself. You have to like all the normal things that we have to do as, as hyphenated workers are in fact job qualifications and just put them in as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And with the reference letters, do you think that there are any particular bits of advice about who to ask or what those people can put in the letters that will help you stand out? That's a good question. Um, I think on some level, the letters are, are speaking to your ability to play well with others. <laughs> Basically, wow. remember how we used to get that in elementary <laughs> school? So on, on that on that level, so it's people who know that you can actually enter into a community and not be like a weirdo, right? That you can actually yeah. live in community and connect. And so that has nothing to do with your artistic ability. So I think if there's one letter that can testify to that, right? And then another one that can maybe speak to how committed you are to this project. Like she shifted away. She pivoted because this really matters to her. And she's taking these workshops and X, Y, Z. I see her working at it. 
to me, that's even more compelling than like, oh, this is the most brilliant writer of her time, of her day. Like, and you better, you know, if you have someone who can say that, that's great. Yes. <laughs> but, but I think a lot of them is just to make sure that someone knows who you are yeah. <laughs> and they know you're going to behave on some level. And so what I do at this point is like my writing group, we do it for each other because we're all professional writers. Yeah. So at this point, it's just like, we can speak to each other. We've been together for years. We've camped together. We've gone to residencies together. We've seen the reviews about each other's work. And so rather than looking, always asking someone who's above you and then feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm asking for another favorite. Oh, I'm putting off asking them because I don't want to do it. Now it's too late. And I suck. Like rather than that, it's like, we all have committed to it. We all kind of have each other on speed dial written the first draft to make it easier for someone. And I think that's really helpful too. I ask my students always to write the first draft of the letter of recommendation. And maybe it's because I don't have time, but it's also, I want them to get to talk about themselves. Think about the things that mattered. What is it that you tried in my class that was unique and different? What kind of feedback did you have? How were you a leader in the community? Did you think about the feedback you gave to others? Did you stay in touch with me? Just write the draft because it makes you then think about yourself in a way. And then I'll come in and like do all the other stuff. But I think it's just a useful exercise too. It's part of the learning. That's huge. It's huge because I've talked about this when I was interviewing Jane Friedman. We were talking mm -hmm. about asking people for things and making it really easy when you ask. Yeah, and yeah, so this yeah. is genius about writing that first draft. I was talking to her about how when my university students would ask me for reference letters, I would have this whole basically Google form that they had to fill right. out to make it easier for me. Mm -hmm. But just, you know, having the whole draft of the reference letter created is huge. And I think that people feel um, like, oh no, you know, if I, if I am writing something like that, am I putting words in someone else's mouth? Right. Like as someone, both of us who have been asked to write reference letters, if someone makes it really easy for you and gives you mm -hmm. that foundation, you're going to be much more likely to say yes <laughs> to exactly. writing the reference letter. Exactly. Yeah. When I get that like beautiful email, that's like, this is where I need them. It's three weeks from now. I've got a draft for you. I've also attached a copy of my CV and my statement. So you know how I'm positioning myself. What else do you need from me? And then they send me a thank you note afterwards. They let me know how it went. Golden. I will write the letters till the, you know, till the end of time. Yes, yes, yes. And that brings up the other point, making sure to give your reference writer a fair amount of time. I would laugh when I would get, you know, the the panicked email from students of like, so the deadline is tomorrow. Right? <laughs> I'm like, oh no. So, so you have this collection of all these things ready to go. It makes yeah. the applying for the residency easier. Now let's talk about money. Okay. For many of the places, there are various levels of funding. And how do you think you best get a good chance to have it all covered or mostly covered? Talk to us about just the financial situation with mm -hmm. these opportunities. Yeah. So when I first started, I was such a beginner. You know, I had had maybe two publications and little tiny women's magazines or something like that. And I was also really trapped in my job and really kind of downtrodden and kind of abused in it and stuff like that. So I wasn't able to even kind of imagine anything, but I did apply to a residency, which was not particularly legit, <laughs> but I did get in. <laughs> and I actually had to take an unpaid leave of absence from work and beg for it in order to be able to go. But for me, it was, you know, an investment in me. And every time I applied, I tried to go for one that was a little bit higher than in the ranking and then just work my way up to the ones that are fully funded. Now, if I had more hubris, I might've just started at the top and said, let, you know, let's see what I can get into, <laughs> you yeah. know? So, you know, and if you have a something that's like a real hot topic right now, or you've gotten an award or something, why not? But otherwise, you can think of these things just like you do publishing as investment. You know, you start with a small journal that's unpaid and then you work your way up. 
to the paid stuff. So every time you get a residency, even if it's one that you have to pay for fully, it's still an award that you put it on your CV. There's always a space to say what other residencies have you gone to. So you list them. And so then you kind of build up your portfolio of someone and you know more and more people too than you're, you know, you're networking and stuff like that. So if you can afford it to kind of start or pay a little bit and move up, that's one possibility. Another thing that I found, particularly for communities of color, if you get in, we are so happy for you. You can crowdsource that and say, I got into this workshop, I got into this residency, these things are covered, but these things aren't. And your community will rally around you and make it possible because we have that sense of collective ownership, like you're doing it for all of us. And so that's kind of a possibility. The one that I'm at right now, the day-to-day stuff is covered, but the flight wasn't. And the flight was really prohibitive. So I was like, what can you do for me? And so I'm giving more talks while I'm here that are being paid for to kind of offset that. And my co-resident was like, well, I'm not doing that. And I'm like, well, did you ask? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, so I mean, there's that. (laughs) I was like, I love this. I'm honored. I'm excited. And you kind of told me late in the process. And so now this actually does have a real financial impact on me. So how are we going to make this possible? So aim high and then see what you need to do to adjust. You can also just start putting money aside for it. There used to be, I think COVID kind of wiped out those resources, but there used to be funds you could get to go to residencies, but so many people were impacted by COVID that that's become harder. But, you know, you can start with ones that are local that you can drive to and then look for the ones that do have transportation funding. A lot of them also have a certain number of fellowships. So, you know, you have to send in your tax return to say you need to qualify for certain expenses to be whatever. So those are possibilities. I alternate between ones that are funded and ones that I have to pay for myself because the ones that where you do have to pay there's more flexibility. You know, you can usually apply later in the process. You have a sense of where you're going to end up. So it's like last year, my girlfriend and I wanted to be in France together at a certain time. And so we're just like, we're just going to apply to a whole bunch of them in France for July. This is the amount we know we could pay if we were going to stay at home and rent an Airbnb. So we knew what we could do it. And we did it that way. You know, whereas it's kind of like you're leaving it to the gods when you apply for the really desirable ones that everyone's applying to at a certain time, you don't know what you're going to get. So you have some control over the ones that you pay for. People are like, well, are they just as prestigious? I think so. I mean, it's a residency is a residency. Of course, you know, Bellagio is one thing, but a residency is a residency. They're, They're all an honor. They all have a jury procedure and there's something to be said for both options. Does that help? Oh, yeah. That's huge. I think what is so helpful is that you and I are aligned in this area of asking, even if it's not listed, what they will provide. And if they haven't forthcomingly said about any extra help, ask for it, ask for it, ask for it. There's nothing bad that can come of it besides them saying, I'm sorry, no. So I remember years ago someone told me about the san miguel writers conference mm. in mexico and i was so interested ah, I love san miguel. <laughs> oh my gosh right so beautiful. Yeah. yes I, I think i've gone four five times now mm. because it's just such a special place but the very first time i found out maybe a month and a half before the conference so it was certainly too late for me to submit a proposal to teach or present and i just felt like if I want to go, what are my most cost effective options? And between the flight and a stay and then looking at the tuition, it was expensive. And so I emailed them and I said, I would love to attend. I just found out about this. People have been singing your conference's praises and I would really like to go, but it's too late to submit my proposal. Is there anything you can do? And and I showed not only the reasons why I needed support. I said at the time I was a professor on a year-to-year contract. And so I was a relatively young mom and I was doing the juggle and Mm -hmm. I was like, Mm -hmm. for me to make this time and space away from my family and with the cost, 
I, I really need support and help, but here's why and how it can benefit you all. You know, I, I want to apply to teach next year. I'll have a wonderful idea of the conference after attending. I am happy if you need any like workshop teaching last minute, I'm happy to cover, you know, I was just like, putting it all out there and <laughs> back. And they said at the time, it's different now, but they said, we actually don't have any official scholarship opportunities, but there's this person volunteered to put you up in their casita. Mm-hmm. If you can get here, just pay a couple hundred bucks and we'll cover the rest of your tuition. Yeah. And so it was just like, suddenly all these costs were cut and I was able to go. And then for three, four more years after I presented for them. And so I, I kind of paid back. Right. 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 But, um, that's that's just one of a million examples of just asking why not? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I think sometimes people forget that not everybody has that access. Not everybody has that finances. So they I think they need to be reminded too, particularly if they say like, we want to be more inclusive. Well, I'm like, well, this is one of the ways you think about that. (laughs) You know, some people just can't walk away from their jobs or family and don't have, you know, that kind of money or yeah, exactly. And so I think it is really important also just to say, I want to do it. I'm committed, but it's just not feasible for me at this level. Try to think about that. Yes. That's great. So last bit on this, because there's so much else. Oh my gosh, we need to have about a five hour conversation. But (laughs) so last bit is just once you get to the residency, any, any tips and tools for making the best use of the time? Mm. That's the difficulty of doing the international ones. Cause then you're like, Oh, I want to visit everything in this country. I want you want to do all the cultural stuff too. And you're like, so you're always torn between just being at your desk and then taking advantage of the human beings around you. <laughs> um, yes. And so this one I'm doing now is really great because it's actually built into it is having conversations with uh, Moroccans about tourism and images. And, you know, so it's really kind of worked, but that's one thing you're going to have to kind of work for your figure out for yourself, but we do have this fantasy. It's like, I get so much done those days where I can just devote myself to writing. So if I go away to a residency for a month, I'll just multiply that by 30. That is not sustainable. (laughs) Your body will be like, no. (laughs) So you really have to just kind of build a schedule for yourself of like, it's either how much time you want to spend or how many projects you want to accomplish or how many words each day, just kind of figure that. And then give yourself that time because it's such intensive. It's just like so much time in your brain. So you want to then do some stuff in your body. You want to spend time interacting with people. Oftentimes residencies are kind of like beautiful estates that have been, have been bequeathed by somebody and they might occupy an interesting space in the community. And so I also feel it's really important to be out there talking to people and the like the one in uh, in Tuscany, you know, we're like living in a village, in a castle, you know, and people in the village are like, so I would always like go down and watch the World Cup in some local bar and then be like, anyone want to like walk me home? And they're like, yes, I want to see the castle, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so just like, you know, having that, because you're kind of an ambassador. And so to kind of think about that as well. But again, these conversations that you have with people, in other fields can be incredible, but networking can be really incredible. I always bring gifts that are very kind of local to just like thank the cooks or Mm -hmm. the person who picked me up or like the bread guy who's always like super nice. Like I just try to think about those things as well. So I feel like I'm really entering a community. And I was talking to my girlfriend about this. She was the one that I often go to residencies with. Sometimes I was like, well, why are we going to residency? Why don't we just rent an Airbnb? She says a residency gives you an identity and embeds you in a community of artists or whatever. And it just facilitates those conversations so much more quickly. And I'm like, yes, otherwise I would not be living in the Medina with like young boys saying, oh, miss, how are you doing? And you know, everybody knows who I am. And I wouldn't have that intimate opportunity I would have to be here for years before I do that. And so that's one thing a residency can do is really pave the way for people in the community who are interested, whether or not they're artistic or not, to kind of talk to you. And so to be open to that and to give yourself time off to explore 
and do the things you didn't expect because some of the best stories will come from getting lost and wandering mm -hmm. off the beaten path and talking to someone who doesn't speak the same language as you but who's like waiting for the bus with you and you figure it out you know and so really just being open and engaged and realistic about what you can do with your time I think mm -hmm. is good and gifts always bring gifts and <laughs> Two things on this. One, it's so key, like why residency and not the Airbnb? I always talk to my community about how can you immerse yourself in the literary conversation? And yeah. I mean that literally, but also metaphorically, like how do you insert yourself into this? So I love what you were saying about that. And the gift thing, I never really thought about this on the flip side, but at a recent retreat that I led in Dora County, Wisconsin here, one of the participants, shout out to Lori, she brought silly socks for everyone. Um, like mine, I think is like a bear wearing like scuba diving equipment <laughs> and so silly. And she brought them for me, but then for every, all of the participants, every time I wear those socks, I'm like, what a great gift, Lori. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a great idea bringing gifts as a true thank you. So last question you not only travel to work on your writing, but you write about travel. Yeah, and yeah. so you have a column as a travel writer and then your memoir, you know, Meeting Faith integrates all of your experience being in Thailand, being a Buddhist nun. So travel is enmeshed in what you write. So can you talk to us a little bit about just this, this travel writing, how you got the column, how people can begin to explore that avenue as an option for what they can do with their writing. Wow. <laughs> I know. Just answer that in a couple minutes. No biggie. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I said at the top of the podcast, you know, I've been doing travel for a long time and really first just doing a, a series of roots stories, like just finding family and then kind of talking about that and really kind of trying to push the industry to think more broadly of travel as not just leisure travel and not just the classic types of people we see all the time, but brown folks and differently abled folks and queer folks and people who travel out of necessity, refugees and immigrants and all of that, that those should all be travel tales. So I started the first writing workshop for travel writers of color maybe seven years ago. And as a result of doing that, then I approached magazines and journals because it was like, it was not enough to tell these people that their stories were great and they should be writing them. Then, then what am I going to do with them? So then I would like partner and ask for, you know, I was like, this is kind of an opportunity to really think about travel writing is so important because it shapes what we know of the world. And if it's all the same people <laughs> saying it, then we're learning very little about the world. So you really have a responsibility to, to broaden that definition and those voices. And so I'd be like, and here's an opportunity. I'm going to make it really easy if you want to partner with my workshop. So I did a lot of those. So we would get like special issues or I would get the magazines to commit to publishing one or two stories or podcasts. So I did a lot of that activism for a long time, which had a real cost it took away from the amount of writing I was doing. And now I kind of gotten back to, into the writing. I'm working on a, a craft book on all my experience doing this and also kind of advocating for it. But I can't even remember how it happened, but I got the column was I was at this residency in France and I had heard about the James Baldwin conference. So I just kind of went down there. I was like, this is a great story. I was coming back through Paris and I was like going to have dinner with a friend. And I said, do you know someone who would want the story? And she's like, oh, there's a new black travel magazine that's looking for people. And so she gave me the woman's email. I WhatsApped her. By the time dessert came, the woman had written back to me and she's like, oh, I took one of your classes on black travel writing or one of your talks <laughs> and you were fabulous and you're on my list. And I don't want one story, like pitch me four stories. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I pitched her four stories, got them in ahead of time, took edits. I can edit like nobody's business. And again, was just kind to people. Like there was an intern from Angola. I would always greet her in Portuguese and thank her for the work she was doing. And apparently all these people like then told the publisher, she does her work on time. She does it professionally. She's kind to everybody. What can you do? And so they wanted me to continue. And I said, no, 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 I can do this during the summer, but I can't continue to write at this rate. 
thanks for the four stories. It was great. And then they're like, well, what if we give you a column and you can do whatever you want? And I was like, say more. <laughs> so again, <laughs> being a good literary citizen and then asking for what you want is how I got my column. Mm-hmm. So now it's, it was weekly. Now we've gone down to one, uh, once a month, it comes out in the Miami Herald. And I really focus on kind of black travel stories it's great. It's really fun. I've never been a columnist before. And so I also thought it would be a good challenge. I also like to say yes to things that terrified me. And I was kind of terrified. So, Well, that bit of writing advice that you just gave applies to everything, which was be a good literary citizen and ask for what you want. I mean, I think that is at the crux of everything you talked about today. And I think it's the perfect way to end this episode because it really applies to everything you're doing as a writer. You are an absolute wealth of knowledge. <laughs> and I feel like I, I, I took notes as we were talking and I'm not even supposed to do that because the microphone picks it up. But I know That's that hilarious. everybody listening is going to go, okay, my homework is to apply to a residency and ask yes. for what I want. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then tag me on social media when you get in. <laughs> yes. Yes. Let us know. We want to celebrate when you get in. We want to know where you got in, how long you're going to be there, all of the good things. So thank you so much, Faith, for coming on today. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's true, my friends, you know that your homework for this week and for the next month maybe is going to be to try to apply to a writing residency or start researching or gathering your materials. This should be on the forefront of your brain because there are opportunities out there and you should be the one to get them. So check out all of the links in the show notes and the way to let us know where you ended up going for your writing residency or where you ended up getting accepted at is by tagging us on Instagram. Faith is at meeting Faith, and I am at meeting Kenny Johnstone. Let us know where you applied. Let us know what opportunities are out there. I want to create a great conversation about sharing resources for these opportunities so that it could be accessible to everyone. All right, my friends, I really appreciate you being here and I really appreciate my podcast producer, Michelle Rado, the incredible host of her own podcast, Daring to Tell. And remember everyone, every heart has a story and every story has a heart. See you next week. Mm-hmm.